Good morning. Peace be with you. Um, as Eric said, we're going to be finishing up our uh, series on prayer. And I, I hope this, this series has been helpful for you to kind of alleviate some of the anxieties and, and kind of give us some clarity. Um, prayer is what forms us into God's people as his disciples. It's an integral part of our life. And that was the goal of this time. And hopefully you have some practices and we're, we're going to practice again together at the end of of our uh, time in the Word. To, we're going to do some extended prayer time. So just be ready for that. And I hope, again, I hope this has been helpful for you. If you have your Bibles today, um, we're going to be in Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. Um, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word? I know normally we say the Lord's Prayer together, but I want, I'm just going to read it. I want you to listen today. Um, our focus is going to be the end of the prayer, but I want to read all of it. Starting in verse 9, Matthew 6, hear the word of the Lord. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. I have, um, I'm like late to the ball game on this, but like I've been acutely aware of buzzwords lately. I don't know. I've I've talked to friends about this recently, and um. I uh, particularly that buzzwords like get used so much that they lose their meaning. Like, like they like, or they've been completely redefined. We don't know what they originally meant. Mo many of them probably were used for good, but now we're just like, we have no idea what it's, what it means. Um, like we can just rattle off some of them. Maybe, maybe you, some are coming to your head. Toxic, right? Not a Britney Spears song. It is, it is a Britney Spears song actually, but it's really good. My wife is, loves that reference. Um, woke. Woke has become something interesting. Transparent. Progressive. Autonomy. All words that have like kind of morphed and changed. Uh, one, one that's really funny is canceled, right? Um, yet last week at the pool, um, my daughters and their friends were canceling me. They're like, you're canceled. And so I started canceling them back. And I'm like, I don't think we know what this means anymore. <laughs> right? We've lost it. What about Karen? Is that, is that, a, that's not a buzzword. That's not a buzzword. That's an insult, right? That's like, that's like slander. <laughs> not a buzzword. Um, I just thought about them. Like, Karen? Sorry if your name's Karen. I'm, God bless you. If that's, that's your lot in life right now. The culture has not been kind to you. Um, but the church world has these words too. Evangelical. Oh, that makes it, uh, so for some people, it makes you very uncomfortable. Reformed. We're reformed. We're not like everyone else. Our theology is better. Sorry. I'm making fun of, making fun of reformed. We're, I, I like that stuff. But Gospel-centered, right? That word is like, oh, it's like, yeah, we're gospel-centered. You see it on church websites. I'm like, if you preach Jesus, yes, duh. Like, it used to, it's like been like, we're distinguished, we're gospel-centered. And like, so are other churches, you know? Mainline faiths, just like that term, 
mainline, the mainline faiths. Fundamentalism. I grew up in a fundamentalist background. That word has like got all kinds of stuff to it. Even deconstruction. Ooh. Like these words, like they have a lot of meaning, and, and, but they've morphed, I think. And one word that I've been frequently exposed to recently in our culture, and, and particularly in this time and space, is the word safe. Like safe. Like I th- our culture is obsessed with safety and safe places. Maybe you noticed that yourself. When I first heard this word, again, I'm, I'm late to the game on buzzwords always. People are using them. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. And you're like, nobody knows what it means. But it's like when I first heard someone using this, somebody was at my house and said, hey, your house is such a safe place. And I'm like, yeah, it, you're not going to suffer physical harm here. <laughs> um, right? And it's like, it's like, yeah, it's a nice neighborhood. You're in the suburbs. It's, you're going to be safe. <laughs> um, but that word means so much more. It, it has, we like use it to identify people and places. Um, one author said that the characteristics of a safe person are calm, non-judgmental, a listener, someone who doesn't try to solve your problems. They don't have an agenda, et cetera, et cetera. And this is good. This is a good thing, isn't it? To have people in your life like that. I actually think Christians should be the safest people in the world. The church should be the safest place in the world. But like many good things, this word, this concept has been morphed and changed, but it's also become weaponized like so many good things do. Many people have become dismissive to anyone who disagrees with them. People break off relationships, friendships, dating, even marriages as a means of assuring their own care and well-being. Sometimes that's necessary, but a lot of times it's, it's actually not. And in many cases, declaring someone or a place as unsafe can be a means of discrediting a place or a person. Rebecca Fishbane, in her article, Is Therapy Speak Making Us Selfish, said this, It's important to be able to set boundaries and advocate for yourself. Occasionally, though, the emphasis on protecting one's individual needs can overlook the fact that someone else is on the other side of the boundary setting. There are reasons a person might be tempted to overindulge in some of the self-care behavior. Conflict can be difficult. And people might think that they can avoid it by asserting their needs in a way that prevents the other person from responding. By using HR language to end a friendship, for instance, or via straight-up ghosting, and by couching the behavior in therapy language, the hard boundary can feel more legitimate or even virtuous. I I think that article uses a, a very interesting word to describe this. I think our... I think it, and it gets to the point of like our obsession over safety. Like it's this idea of protection. We want to feel protected. That's sa- That's what, I mean, when you're safe, you're protected. But let's go deeper. What's, what's, what's underneath protection and all of that, that idea? I actually think it comes out in control. It's control. I think... We want to feel safe and protected, so we try to control. And I, the, I think control is an illusion, but it's so tempting. But it, it's, it's just that. 
It's an illusion. The natural tendency to move towards control in our lives is so that everything that we build, think of all the things we build, our homes, our stuff, our life, our identities, we, we insulate them. We try to protect them. We've, built, we've worked so hard on them. We want to control it so that they're untouched, so that they're safe. This is why, by the way, think about this. This is why insurance is one of the biggest industries in the world. You spend thousands of dollars a year. Everyone in this room, if you own anything, protecting your stuff. I do too. I'm not. It's part of our culture. It's like a major part of our bottom line as a nation. We want to feel safe and we want to control and we want to protect. Sharon Miller said it this way in her book, The Cost of Control. The illusion of control is powerful. If we feel like we're, if we feel like we're in control, it doesn't matter if we actually are. That is how influential the illusion of control is for human imagination. Whether it is the foods we avoid to prevent cancer or the extensive plans we make for an upcoming vacation. I hate planning vacations. These decisions are no guarantee for anything at all, but they make us feel better in the meantime. We as individuals and we as a culture crave control so desperately that we will reject reality and live in denial of our limitations as long as we possibly can. And this is what I find so fascinating about the Lord's Prayer. This is it right here. If you look at the Lord's Prayer line by line, I think the prayer that Jesus is teaching us to pray, it's fascinating because it addresses everything that we try to control. Let's think about it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. What is that saying? The timing of the work of God in the world and all of its circumstances, they're in your control. They're not mine. Think about that. The food we need to survive, not in your control. It's in his. Give us bread. The shame we feel in needing forgiveness when we fail. We can't even, we don't, we have no control over the forgiveness we receive. And even relieving the shame that others feel when they fail. All under God's control. And as watch. Jesus literally starts the prayer saying, pray like this, but he doesn't say it like that. He doesn't say, pray this way. This is like not praying the way. You better figure out what you're doing, what I'm doing or what my will is, or you're gonna be completely lost in your life. That's not how the Lord's prayer starts. It doesn't start with, you better fight to protect your money and your stuff because you know what? Your resources are limited and it's gonna be hard to get food. So you better insulate and protect everything that you have. He doesn't say pray like that. Or here's this one, stings me. You better get your act together because you won't be forgivable. We're not, that's not, forgive us, Lord. Give us forgiveness. And he's like, that's the opposite of that is saying, you know what? Get your act together. Or even worse, when we apply that to other people or shame everyone else because they haven't figured out how to live properly. In our text today, Matthew 6, 14, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or some translations say the evil one, Satan, evil, all of that, I would argue is the strongest indictment against control. 
I think this is what Jesus is trying to do, not just in the Lord's prayer, but all of our aspects of prayer. I think he's ultimately saying this, stop trying to control everything. Stop. Stop trying to control every aspect of your existence, of yourself, of your life. I think praying the Lord's prayer is a constant reminder to relinquish all of our efforts to protect ourselves. I try to control everything, so many things in my life. I'll just give you a short list. Maybe your list looks similar. I try, I mean, I I fight battling controlling my kids and their well-being because ultimately they're a reflection of me, right? They got to be a certain way or act a certain way. And I like, it's there. The overall direction of my family, maybe financial stability. Do we have, are we protected? Are we good? My own education, that sounds really strange. It's like, I want to be knowledgeable. And so I try to control how much I take in all the time. My job security, people at the church are like, oh yeah, we know, bro. You know, it's like, they can tell you sometimes it's unbearable because you're like worried about it. You're, you're consumed by it sometimes. Maybe that's part of your story. Here's the worst is my ego and my image. I, I, have, I am desperately trying to control how people perceive me. When I walk into a room, like I invite people over my house, guess what I do? We got to get this thing tidied or else it's going to not look good at me. I'm going to look like I'm not put together. I'm going to look like things are in disarray. I think you, I would encourage you to make a list of, on your own. And you can probably recognize this aspect of control everywhere. Social media, news, or just interactions with your neighbors, friends. Go to the grocery store. Like, it's like, to see it everywhere. We live in a culture that is trying to cultivate a life of meaning and identity. And we are working tirelessly to perform and control, to, to just protect and and control and keep everything safe in every aspect of our life. And we have to ask, what is it doing to to us? I actually think it's doing two possible things to us. The first thing I think it's doing to us is it's killing us. I think it's going to lead, if we continue this, it's going to lead you to complete despair. It's going to lead me to complete despair. Think about it. Our culture is more anxious than ever. We are completely exhausted. People feel more isolated and lonely than ever. And depression is at its highest in history. And all of us, we have an identity or an image that we're trying to project and we can't even reach it. And so we're met with complete failure all the time and despair. And oftentimes our bodies... Our, our souls are, are like with anxiety attacks or feel it everywhere in our, in our presence. And our, our bodies are like reacting to this and they're supposed to be wake-up calls. It's like warning, something's happening here. But what do we do? We actually double down. I would say, I, I mean, I do at times. I double down and try to work harder and harder and it's even perpetuating the, the grief and the exhaustion and the pain. So it's going to lead to complete despair. But the other side of it is that this outcome of trying to control everything is going to, can lead to overwhelming arrogance because the illusion of control is working for you. 
It's working for me. This is where somebody becomes judgmental towards others because they can't get their act together. You, you may think that your success may actually be due to your own efforts and your own goodness. It looks like self-sufficiency, and sometimes church people are the worst. Actually, in the Bible, there's a, there's a version of these people, and they're the most religious people that have tons of interactions with Jesus. They're called the Pharisees. Listen to how they pray. Luke 18, 11, and 12, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I pray, or I fast twice a day, and I give tithes of all that I get. Look how awesome I am, God. Thank you, I'm not like these other people. That's the prayer of someone who's arrogant, who's self-sufficient. And here's what's crazy. Jesus rejects them completely. Actually, in that moment, he rejects them. And in John 8, he calls them sons of the devil. And he says in Matthew 23, 15, the disciples of the Pharisees are twice the sons of hell because they're self-sufficient. They're in control. So how do we relinquish control? How do we do it? I, it's actually, I think it's just really simple. We trust. We pray. The final line of the Lord's prayer, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, I think is actually saying, I relinquish all control. I relinquish it all. Every aspect of who I am, what I have, and what I'm doing is completely dependent on you on the Lord. It's, it's dependent upon God. And I think this is why Paul would write, he writes this to the church in 2 Corinthians. Here's how you do it. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Weakness. That's like the whole thing. You, you maybe like you've been in church a long time. You've heard this term like spiritual warfare. This is what like we, we hear that it's thrown around. A lot of people think it's like, I got to fight temptation and evil and sin using my own power and self-control. God, don't lead me into it because, you know, I've, I've got to dodge it. Or even worse, people use it to fight people. They think it's like, let's fight everybody outside of the church because they're trying to bring us down. That's not spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is you relinquishing control. It's dependence. And your greatest weapon in the fight is your dependence. It's your weakness. It's giving it up. It's saying, I can't do it on my own. I love the way James says it. James 1, 12 through 14. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Temptation and evil are inside of us, all around us. And when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we are actually saying, God, you're the only way I'm going to make it. You're the only way I'm going to make it in. 
into your kingdom, into a crown of life with you. All the efforts, all the sin, all the temptation, you can't defeat it. I can't defeat it by myself. I can't do it. And ultimately, I can only defeat the lies of Satan through you. Remember Genesis 3? You will be like God. That's self-sufficiency. That's control. You can't be self-sufficient. You need him. And if we don't acknowledge that, we're going to be devoured. Like 1 Peter says, you're going to be devoured by Satan who's like a lion if you try to do it on your own. It's the only way we're going to get into God's kingdom is to be delivered by him, be rescued by him. So in closing today, I, I want to like, how do we do this? Like, how do we grow in dependence of God? How do we trust God through prayer? How do we know, how do we know actually even better? How do we know we're actually doing that? How do we, how do we know we're growing in dependence? I, I don't know, like, I don't think there's some quantifiable measure. Like you're playing a video game. It's like, you're level 48 dependence, right? Keep growing. You'll be stronger. I actually think there's like an, a, a good acid test or a good litmus test is actually the end of the Lord's prayer, his teaching on prayer just after it at the end of our passage, Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Forgiveness is a fruit of life, of dependence. It's like, it's the product. Like the more that you are leaning and trusting and depending on God, something happens. Like you see how much you're forgiven. You see how much the Lord has led you, provided for you. And you see the enormity of your need of him and it forces compassion on you. It does. There's no, there's, it's so natural. When we encounter forgiveness, we can't help but forgive others. So like, that's, that's it. Like that's part of it is like, are you becoming more forgiving? Do you see forgiveness in your life? And it only makes sense that a controlling, self-sufficient person cannot forgive. They don't have the margins for it. They can only wonder why people keep failing. Why can't they get their act together? Because I think that forgiveness is tied to control. A, a helpful exercise maybe to do, try this at home in your own quiet time, maybe in our time of prayer later. Make a list of people in your life that you struggle to forgive. Like really think about it. For some of you, like this is like really deep stuff, like therapy stuff. I, I know it's been in my life. Like therapy has, has brought out so many people and so many things and stories in my life where I struggle to forgive and I can't get past it. Maybe, maybe it's just simple for you. If, if that list is really short, there's something there. If it's real long, there might be more there. But struggle, like where do you lack forgiveness in your life and people? And then I want you to kind of really examine what aspect of control are they violating? Why I can't forgive them. Where, where can I not? I can't control this. Is there, is there something tied there? So maybe that's a helpful exercise for you to try on your own. This is really hard. Forgiveness and dependence and all that. That's why we pray. And I think naming all these things in prayer to God, it actually relinquishes its power and 
It relinquishes our control. That's what a life of prayer does. And so I want to um, close our time together as we enter into a time of communion. We're going to do an extended time of prayer as well. Um, on the, I, I think Jesus wasn't just telling us how to pray. I, I think he embodied it. A, not only a life of prayer, the action of prayer, but he was the embodiment of what prayer does, dependence. He gave all of his trust over to the Father. That's why he was the perfect son. Eternally one with God and complete dependence on him in his life on earth. He did that. He did that. His dependence gave us the ability to become dependent. We look to Jesus. And on the night when Jesus died, this is really interesting. He prayed in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. He committed his spirit to the Father completely as the eternal Son. And he modeled complete dependence to the Father. And here's what's wild. And as he hung on the cross to win your forgiveness and my forgiveness, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Only someone with complete trust and complete dependence can pray that way. I long for that. I'm not there. <laughs> but what if that's possible one day as we come closer to Christ, that we can have such prayers of forgiveness towards people, even ones that hurt us? So communion's open on the night when Jesus died. He reminds us of the means of your dependence. That was one on the cross. His body was broken. The cup reminds us of his bloodshed. He's going to be stationed up here and here. We have communion uh, for gluten-free people over here, for those who need it. Um, it's right here. Uh, but we're going to open up a, an extended time of prayer. We've been doing this each week. Um, this is the final week. If this is really hard for you, you're like, yes, final week. Um, but we're going to just we're going to have an extended time of prayer. My friend Peter is going to come up and play for us uh, during this time. Um, but we're like we're going through this movement of um, of prayer. It's it's based off the Lord's prayer. It's this model, and it's presence, rejoice, ask, and yield. And so the way it's gonna way this time's gonna go. I'm I'm gonna lead us through some prompts, and uh, we're gonna have um, just movements in time. If I would encourage you to get in a posture that's comfortable for you, maybe that's head down, eyes closed, eyes open. Uh, hands open in a receiving posture. For some of you, it's it may be turning around in your chair, getting on your knees and praying. Um, we are going to be here for a little bit of time. Um, so yeah, uh, we're going to start out with some silence and some breathing just to be settled here in this space. And then I'm going to start with prompts um, to kind of lead us through prayer during this time. After that, communion will open up and I'll pray ending our time in prayer. Let's start with some silence before the Lord. <clears throat> 